Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Live Wire House Party. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We have a fun show in store for you this week. Chapman and McLean Way are going to stop by. Uh, they are brothers and they are the filmmakers behind that Netflix smash series, Wild Wild Country, about the Rajneesh movement in Oregon. Uh, If you've seen the series, this is a peek uh, kind of behind the curtains of how it was made. If you have not seen the series, you're going to want to after this. Uh, Plus, we're going to talk to an incredible high school student, Raleigh Schweinfurth. She was trying to figure out why these bees were dying near where she lived, and she did. And it is an amazing story. Plus, we're going to hear comedy from the always hilarious Ahmed Barucha. And we're also going to get music from Ron Artiste II and The Truth. Don't go anywhere. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of LiveWire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hey there, Luke. How's it going? Pretty good, actually. And I have some good news. Once again this week, we have added a new station. Oh, boy. Yeah. Prairie Public, all (gasps) over the great state of North Dakota. Ooh. I have some dazzling details about North Dakota. Are you ready? Yes, I need to know. I know very little about North Dakota. Okay, 1936 was a very extreme year for North Dakota. It was both minus 60 degrees Fahrenheit at one point and 121 (gasps) degrees Fahrenheit Uh. in the same year. This is why people are indoors listening to public radio a lot, (laughs) I would assume. (laughs) Um, Less than 1% of North Dakota is forest, um, but they have the most national wildlife refuges in the country, 62. Huh. Also, North Dakota features such notable cities as Cannonball, Flasher, and Zap. Ah! I assume we're on in all of those places now. That's what I'm going to name my three firstborn children, my triplets. (laughs) Cannonball, Flasher, and Zap Passarello. Strong, strong names for those Passarello kids. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, great. I'm glad to know that the people in all those fine towns and all over North Dakota are now hearing us. Welcome to everybody listening on Prairie Public. (laughs) Elena, you ready to do this little radio show? Let's do it. Molly, crucially, are we recording? We are recording. Okay, good. All right, take it away, Elena. From PRX, it's Livewire. Recorded from our actual houses. Welcome to... 
the Livewire House Party. This week, filmmakers Chapman and McLean Way, comedian Ahmed Barucha, and high school student and scientist Raleigh Schweinfurth, with music from Ron Artis and The Truth and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, live and direct from a small room just off his kitchen, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! Yeah, 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 oh, yeah, thank yeah, you yeah. very much, Elena Passarello. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. <laughs> you know, a lot of people say, how do you bring the energy when you're doing the show from home? You know, normally we have a big crowd. One Elena Passarello is, that's like 400 average civilian attendees. So. Yeah, what I don't have in substance, I, I make up for in noise. So I'm happy to be of service. Uh, it's good to have you here. It's nice to talk to you. Yeah, um, you Of course, speaking of the Livewire audience, each week we like to ask the audience a question. Uh, and then folks answer that through social media. This week, a question that took on even added weight and significance this week just because of everything that's been happening in the world. The question to the Livewire audience was, what do you still have faith in? Mm. Last last week when we were getting the question from Ariana, our social media manager, I said, I hope this isn't the first week we have zero responses to the audience <laughs> question, but it sounds like we actually got a lot of responses, right, Elena? Yeah, I think the most uh, in several weeks. Okay, we're going to get to some of those responses in a minute. First, though, I want to ask you, Elena, what, uh, what do you still have faith in? I still have faith in nachos, but okay. <laughs> I, I also still have faith in getting out of your head and just doing something for someone else. You know, yes. like since March, it's like, even if it's a tiny little thing, a postcard to a friend or, you know, just finding a reason to be nice to someone in the grocery store all the way to like, mm-hmm. you know, large acts of service with your wallet. I think that for me at least has been something that is consistently keeping me going. Yeah. I think the a really reliable way to sort of improve our own kind of mental space is to help somebody else out. It's amazing how quickly that kind of changes how you're feeling internally, maybe making nachos for us. So you bring together the two things, Elena, that you still have faith in. Uh, I would say that I still have faith in the amazing relationship that can develop between a human and an invertebrate. And I say this because mm. I watched this documentary this week on Netflix called My Octopus Teacher. Have you heard anything about this? No, but I am a big fan of octopodes. So tell me more. Uh, this guy in South Africa uh, was really into swimming in the very cold, like southern waters of South Africa in like a kelp forest <laughs> without any diving gear, just like uh, goggles. And he makes friends with this octopus, like a young, this particular kind lives for about a year. Oh my gosh. And he sort of becomes friends with this octopus and starts filming it. And you just see the relationship develop between this guy and this octopus over the course of a year. Oh my God. And it is so beautiful. The cinematography is amazing. <gasps> the message of the film, just the the interaction between this guy and this octopus. I cried at least five times. I gotta go. Um, I'm sorry. You, you can't tell me that there's a weepy octopus weeper. <laughs> Yeah, and then expect me to still do the show. Peace out. <laughs> I know, right? It's like with with everything going on and and how bleak stuff can feel. That relationship, honestly, is what got me through this last week. Eight arms to hold you, indeed. And <gasps> at one point seven, because the octopus gets attacked by a shark. Oh no! I'm telling you, it's got everything. Drama. <laughs> it's got a love story. It's beautiful. Hey, what are the listeners saying? Uh, is uh, something that they still have faith in? Can you guess, Luke Burbank? 
which answer we got the most repeatedly. Oh, man. I don't, I can't even hazard a guess. Was it a man and octopus relationship? Close. Um, man's relationship to. Oh, was it their pets? Yes, and specifically dogs. Their dogs. Uh, interestingly, yes. nobody said they still have faith in their cats. <laughs> <laughs> At least five or six dogs in this list. Really? Yes. And my favorite one is from Tony. Tony says, uh, Tony still has faith in the fact that no matter what, my dog is always happy to see me. <laughs> True story. How about one more uh, thing that the listeners still believe in to give us a little hope here? Um, here's one from a Tracy Seattle resident. It's very important that Tracy is a Seattle resident because Tracy's answer is Gore-Tex and fleece. <laughs> that is the that is the dress code of Seattle. I yeah. speak as somebody who lived there for most of my life. It's like the only place where you see people getting married and the groom is wearing a polar fleece. Mm -hmm. Tuxedo. Yeah. That's a that's only in Seattle <laughs> you see that. Um, all right, let's get our first guests over here to the house party. Um, obviously, this pandemic uh, has got a lot of us watching a lot of stuff on the streaming services like Netflix, but also at the same time kind of questioning our own belief systems <laughs> because everything seems like it's kind of up for consideration right now. So these guests that we're going to bring over, they're kind of the perfect intersection of those two things, binge watching and questioning everything you think you know about the world. Uh, they are the brothers behind this Netflix docuseries, Wild Wild Country. Uh, it was super popular when it first came out. It's about this thing, the Rajneesh movement in Oregon, uh, which happened kind of in the early 80s. This guru named Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, he came over to the town of Antelope, Oregon, which is in a very rural mm -hmm. part of the state. And, and set about to try to build this like utopian city. Then eventually uh, the folks that were there for the commune started to interact with the locals there in Antelope and the Dalles and other parts of the area. And when they tried to take over Antelope and rename it Rajneesh Puram, that's when things started to get really weird. <laughs> uh, so this <laughs> docuseries covers the whole uh, series of events. It's pretty amazing. Uh, we had Chapman and McLean on the show back in 2018 when we were still at the Alberta Rose Theater. So take a listen to this. It's our chat with these filmmakers. Hello, welcome to Livewire. Hey, thanks for having yeah, us on. This is a blast. We're excited to be here. Um, let's talk first about, about Bhagwan. Why did people find him to be so compelling? Like, why did these true believers just give up everything to go be with this guy? Yeah, it was a question that we would ask, like, a lot of people who had been a part of the movement. And it was odd. Like, I think when we first started this, we were pretty dismissive of the movement to begin with. And uh, when we had talked to people... We've already though, established there are some former members here, <laughs> exactly, so let's so just try be keep it yeah. pretty friendly. <laughs> yeah, um, they had um, they had talked about it as being a pretty profound experience that they had had in their life, um, which as documentary filmmakers we were interested in. I mean, we got hooked into this story having never heard about it before. We grew up in Los Angeles in the 90s, so this was very, very far off our radar. And the way that we had gotten into it was we had made a documentary in 2014 about a baseball team that played here, and then we were licensing footage from the Oregon Historical Society, and a film archivist there kind of started mentioning about these 
Umatic tapes that he had. There are 525 of them and hours of footage that had been kind of shot on the ranch. And he and another archivist and I were talking and started telling us kind of a little bit about the story. And it's like a town takeover. And then they bust in 5,000 homeless people and try and take over the county. And then they poison 750 people. And it's the largest case of biochemical terrorism in the United States. And so I think, like, I was just shocked that I had never heard the story before. I was almost questioning them, like, whether they had yeah. it right, and then just started quickly Googling around and just being astounded that all this stuff started checking off that it happened. But uh, I, I guess I'm still curious, uh, what was it about this oh. guy, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, that was so compelling? Because I have to say, in, in your Netflix docuseries, He's sort of a, you know, he's a pretty quiet, almost background figure. He's almost like the idea of a person. Yeah, and yet people were giving up everything to go live on in this Rajneesh Puram commune. I think it's because he never blinked. If you see the footage <laughs> of him, it's pretty impressive, you know? Like, when I talk to my wife now and I want to get something from her, I just do the big eyes, <laughs> the hands. His hands were amazing. Like, if you study his hands, it's incredible the way he would talk, so, you know. Uh, yeah, but it, it was interesting. I think that, like... <laughs> I mean, you guys are brothers, right? I we feel are. like you guys are really taking different approaches to the seriousness of this issue. And that's fine. We that's play. what's we great. Play. That's yeah. what's great about having both of you on here. It was interesting. So I think Bogwan had done a couple things, which was, like, historically, I think this is kind of like Esalen was happening in, in Big Sur, California, and Berkeley. There was this big kind of... There's kind of this Eastern migration of seekers, of people who were, like, their words were there walking a path of enlightenment. And so they were going to India kind of on these spiritual trips. And Bhagwan, I think, was kind of one of the first that said, like, especially to people who were successful and especially to people who had accumulated a lot of a wealth in America, that's like, you don't need to reject that, which is what a lot of other gurus were saying. You don't need to reject money and wealth and sex and good food and wine. Like, you can reach enlightenment and have it all. So, understandably, I think that was, like, appealing to a lot, a lot of people yeah. as to, like, why they wanted to join. And so, I think that, like, the, I think what was really interesting is, like, the next thing that happened was, I think Bhagwan and Sheila, my, just in the conversations I had with Sheila and kind of other people that were part of the movement and were there at the time in Pune, India, was kind of like, India, or India's had a lot of gurus, but America hasn't really had, like, a big guru that had, that had come here and really, like, left a mark on the country and the world. I think Bhagwan kind of saw America as kind of the major leagues of kind of what he could come and really leave a, a powerful mark here. So they kind of start looking for land in America, and that's when they kind of arrived on your guys' doorsteps. This is Livewire from PRX, the Livewire house party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We are playing a conversation recorded back in 2018 with the filmmakers Chapman and McLean Way. They made that Netflix series Wild Wild Country. Uh, we got to take a quick break, uh, but don't go anywhere. We're going to be right back with more with Chapman and McLean Way here on the Live Wire House Party. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners... Uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the 
association that we are part of, uh, probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello, who is in Corvallis, Oregon. Speaking of Oregon, mm. let's jump back into our conversation with Chapman and McLean Way. Uh, they are the filmmakers uh, who are behind the Netflix series Wild Wild Country. If you haven't had a chance to watch it, would highly recommend. It's a great way to pass the time when you're indoors for whatever reason is currently keeping us all indoors. <laughs> um, this is that conversation we had with them at the Alberta Rose Theater again back in 2018. Take a listen to this. Who were the Rajneeshis? You you mentioned that uh, they were they were people who found the message of enlightenment but with material comfort to be appealing. Like this was a $110 million operation. Where was the money coming from and who were the people flocking here? Yeah, the money kind of came from a couple different sources. Obviously these were a lot of like highly successful, highly educated followers who uh, donated a lot of money to join this movement and build this utopia. Um, also, the guru had a, a very successful publishing business and book business and put his discourses on tapes and sold them across the world. And um, so I think it was a, a combination of the, the money from the followers as well as their kind of uh, business savvy. Yeah, I think one of the things that came across kind of in talking to 
the people who had joined the movement was kind of like the deeply religious backgrounds that they said that they were brought up with. So in some ways, it was, I think, for some, almost like a substitution of, of faith and, and devotion that they had. I, I didn't get the sense that there were a lot of people, like, like we kind of grew up not really being that spiritual or religious, and I think that kind of helped us in making the documentary series. Um, you know, I think, like, there was one character that I spoke to that talked about how she was in the Vatican, and she remembers the Pope driving by in kind of like the 1970s version of what the Pope mobile was, and how that was like identical to what her religious ecstasy experience was when she saw Bhagwan drive by in a Rolls Royce. I mean, for her, it was identical. She would tell stories of like her sister became a nun and how her family reacted to that. And she said, you know, my sister changed her name, wore all black robes, and put a cross around her neck. And I changed my name to Ma Shanti Bhadra, and I put on orange clothes, and I put a mall around my neck. So I think that for some people, it was a substitution of some sort. Uh, you guys take a pretty even-handed approach uh, to, I think, not really describing it as a cult. And I know that's a, a somewhat, for people that were, were part of that movement, that's a somewhat loaded term. Um, I also was curious to see that the ex-members, or the, I mean, maybe still somewhat current members of that movement, none of the people in your film, or at least few of them, seemed put off by the experience. They seem to be reflect on it as a really important part of their life. Do you think it was a cult? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think that we were definitely interested in kind of examining the story, you know, it happened just two years after Jonestown. And so cult hysteria was kind of sweeping the nation. And anything that wasn't Christian was kind of being put into this cult box. And, um, you know, there's, cults are wildly different in their own belief systems and, and, and what they believe in. And I think that we showed a couple different perspectives. Someone like Jane, who's the Australian woman, um, you know, who had plans to assassinate the assistant uh, U.S. attorney. Um, you know, she believes that she was part of a destructive cult that, that, that did, uh, you know, bad things. A lot of other members see this as, like, one of the most profound experiences they had in their life still to this day um, and take offense at, at, you know, this being termed a cult. Yeah, I mean, I think it was, like, definitely one of the central questions that we were playing with in the series or that we were interested in exploring with. And I think on service level, we knew what attracted us to the story so much was, like, how does this peace-loving group that talks about, like, yoga and meditation and that was their goal was to build this utopian paradise, and how do certain members of this group end up becoming responsible for the largest case of biochemical terrorism in the United States? I mean, it sort of almost starts off like a story of these typically white, rural Oregonians who are maybe not into these free-loving hippies, and then it kind of turns into the story of the commune really doing some very dangerous and, and illegal stuff. When did this really start to turn? When did this story become sinister? Yeah, I think kind of the first, what we found in our research was there was this huge land use battle that involved the Thousand Friends of Oregon, which is a well-known prominent environmental law group um, out here in Oregon. And, you know, the Roshnishis felt like we've invested $120 million in our town. We're 19 miles from the nearest city. We're not bothering anyone. Uh, we should be allowed to build what we want to build out here. Um, and the other side was saying, no, we're going to come in with bulldozers and we're going to, you know, destroy these buildings. And I think that was kind of like the first uh, line in the sand that was drawn. And from that point on, you just see these, you know, these two groups kind of just become more entrenched in, in their own beliefs. Yeah, and it was almost like, I think, Sheila in particular as let's, kind of a Let's talk about her, Ma'anan Sheila. She was sort of the Bhagwan's uh, voice to the outside world because he would take a vow of silence at times and things like that. Uh, and, and she was the one who really perpetrated and sort of seemed to have orchestrated some pretty not okay stuff. She's in Switzerland. Is she still wanted in the U.S.? What's her legal status? Yeah, it's a really it's really complex, but I'll try and give you the, the basics, which is that basically she 
Sheila and a lot of Roshanishi served time for state crimes. Sheila never was prosecuted with her federal crimes. We weren't able to get into it in the, in, in, in the documentary too much, but this is 100% real, is that she painted the, one of the interior rooms of the prison and got credited 30 days early of her state prison sentence. She gets out, takes a flight to Switzerland. She married a former Swiss sannyasin, so she's like legally allowed to live in Switzerland, but travel outside of Switzerland is pretty much restricted for her. Which of the plots was she specifically responsible for? She pled guilty to a wide range of things, but <laughs> mostly the thing that they definitely had was they tried to kill Bhagwan's doctor on the ranch, but they also kind of pled guilty to mostly the salmonella poisonings in Wasco County too. Why did, they, why did the poisoning go down? So basically, it was a two-prong attempt to take over the Wasco County in 1984. On one prong, they had this plan, which they executed, to bus in as many homeless people as they possibly could into the state. And so Oregon... By the way, quick aside, I was out with some friends last night, and a buddy of mine, Roden, said, oh yeah, it was the 80s, and we hadn't seen my Uncle Gary in years. <laughs> and my dad was watching the news in Seattle and was no like, way. there's Gary. Yeah. He was one of the homeless yeah. people. Yeah, they called them street people back then, which I don't know, is a harsh term to me, but they were like, yeah, we're gonna bus in all these street people. Um, so they sent Greyhound buses to like 20, 25 major American cities. Um, and Oregon at that time, I don't know what it is today, but it was 20 days. If you intended to live in the state of Oregon and you had lived in it 20 days before the election, you could register to vote. And so that was part of their plan, which was to bolster their numbers. The other plan was to suppress the vote, which was um, to, they took salmonella culture and they sprinkled it in 10 different restaurants. And uh, over 751 people dined out in the Dalles and got sick with no one died, but it was salmonella poisoning. Have you been surprised at how much of a sensation your, your series on Netflix, Wild Wild Country, has been? I mean, I feel like it's it's really fascinating all of yeah. America right now. It's kind of like this niche socio-political thriller, but it's like playing like a Marvel movie, you know? <laughs> so I was like, we thought it was going to have a very small audience, but um, I think it seems to be tapping into a lot of issues today. Um, that That's what I was wondering about. Do you feel like we're in a particular moment as a nation where this, for some reason, is extra compelling? Yeah, we always joke around that. To us, the story of Rashanish Perman, in some ways, is like comforting, because it's like, we did survive this, and it's like, maybe every generation goes through something that just like, <laughs> <laughs> rattles them to their core right. and I feel like maybe that's the situation we're in right now it's like we'll, we'll every generation it. gets an oddball in a fancy car who has a weird <laughs> sway over people that can't be explained <laughs> Chapman and McLean Way everybody the series on Netflix is Wild Wild Country That was Chapman and McLean Way, recorded back in 2018, talking about their series, Wild Wild Country, which is still available on Netflix and definitely worth checking out. Mm -hmm. This is the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, as we like to do each week, we ask the uh, Livewire listeners a question. This week it was, what's something... You still have faith in. Just a random question we picked, unrelated to the news of the week or the month or the year. Just, you know, wondering what you might still have faith in. Uh, Elena, what, what's the audience saying they actually still have some faith in? Here's one from Dave. Dave still has faith in whiskey and my deep and abiding rage and my ability to channel it into fun for everyone. Yay! 
<laughs> wow. Do you think that last part of that is sarcastic? Uh, I don't know. I mean, whiskey and rage. I'm trying to figure out how that becomes fun for everyone. Uh, as a person who has, by the traveled, by the way, in both of those circles myself, <laughs> I like the idea of listener Dave getting kind of tuned up on whiskey and then channeling his rage into inflating a bouncy house <laughs> for the kids to jump around in. Like fun right. for fun everyone. For everyone. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, what, what else are our listeners still having some amount of faith in? I love this one from Lindsay. Lindsay still has faith in my mom's hugs. Mm. Aww. It's true. You know? That's really sweet. Yeah. I, I did a TV story a little while ago about hugging. Yeah. yeah. Legally and uh, from a sort of epidemiological standpoint, if <laughs> hugging is okay. Mm-hmm. And I was hugging my daughter, who at that time I hadn't seen for three months. And I masked up and I was following this careful guideline and I was filming it because oh it was going to be used on TV. All things you think that would make take you out of the moment. And I swear to God, when we actually hugged, it was like... Really, really intense. I don't want to lose hugs. I don't want, and I also don't want to limit my hugs to like my immediate family. Like I want to, I want to hug strangers. Sorry. Sorry, America. I do. I'm Look out. Well, <laughs> I'm going to pass on what I learned okay. from, from experts in, in, you know, how the virus is transmitted and all that. Hugs are actually okay. It's good if both people are in a mask, if you make the hug relatively brief, and if you sort of angle your faces away from each other, a hug is much less dangerous than uh, going to a karaoke bar. No, or... my other thing I love to do. I love to sing hug. karaoke so good everybody hugs. <laughs> well, you're going to have to wait a little bit longer on that one, Passarello. Okay. But you can't, I just want people to know, it is hugging is not the most dangerous activity that you can do right now. You just got to be smart about it. So okay. um, that's the word from the experts. All right, one more from our audience, something that they still have faith in. This one I believe in 100%. It's from Tiffany, and Tiffany still has faith in mashed potatoes. <gasps> yeah. We I bought so many mashed potatoes, like instant mashed potatoes, not even the good kind, you know, just like the kind you add hot water to at the beginning of the pandemic. Mhm. Oh, right. And I'm and I'm out of them cuz they're so good. I've eaten like 20 bags <laughs> of instant mashed potatoes since this started. Everything else I bought canned corn, you know, you bought a lot of like beans, right? Don't beans. <laughs> that's all just sitting right where I put it when I brought it in the house. The mashed potatoes, I just went through the last bag. They're so good. It sounds like it can go in your go bag, too. Since the fires, you know, we've all put together our go bags just in case out mm. here on the West Coast. And I've been trying to figure out what the perfect go bag food is. I think Tiffany and you figured it out. Next step, I'm going to just open the bag and empty it into my mouth and see what happens. <laughs> it's something from like Willy Wonka where suddenly oh, I'm, no. like, I'm full of mashed potatoes. I'm losing my faith in you, Burbank. <laughs> <laughs> this is Livewire. We are talking this week about things we still have faith in. And I think this next guest uh, is going to make the strong case for the answer being the youth of America. Mm-hmm. That's something we can still have faith in. Um, we talked to her at the Alberta Rose Theater as part of this fascinating Friends segment that we like to do. This was back in 2018. Her name is Raleigh Schweinfurth. Take a listen to this. Raleigh, welcome to Livewire. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, All right, you have actually done so many fascinating things. I don't know where to start. I've been reading up on you, but let's go back five years. You were in eighth grade, and you were... (laughs) 
You were walking through a parking lot and you noticed like a ton, like 50,000 dead bees. What did you do next? Um, well, after the mass bee die-offs that happened in 2013, I collected honeys from around the areas where these bees had died. Um, and I did some independent science research. And over the past few years, I figured out that I could actually detect the insecticide that was responsible for killing the bees in honey and soil. And I also, if you cultivate greenery and bacteria, I figured out you can use that to remove this compound from the environment. How old are you? I'm 18. I, I have done nothing with my life. Did you, like, did, how did, did you know how to do this kind of science when you, when you set out to try to save these bees? I actually did not know what I was doing at all. So actually this was a big thing that I started and I figured out over the course of this um, process of how to do these things. So at first, um, I really had no idea what I was doing. I collected the honeys, but eventually I've been able to figure it out over time. And like just trial and error and like going online. Did you do this on Snapchat? Like how did this, no. how did you, no, no, that's a no. thing, right? Is that still a thing? I think so. I don't have one, but um, no. This is why you're saving the bees of America because you're not on Snapchat. Uh, also, you, you ended up in a, in a sort of science contest, right? You won $40,000 for this? Yes, I did. What are you spending that on? Uh, college tuition. <laughs> um, okay, that's like enough for one lifetime. You saved bees, but that's not the only thing. You founded a group to promote the inclusion of Latino students in, in your school and in youth culture. Yes, and actually um, yesterday was my school's annual culture shock where everyone comes together and we discuss complex issues relating to diversity and equity. And it was, It's a really great thing that my school does. So. Let's, um, let's keep the Raleigh show rolling on. With this dazzling detail, you are also renown a renowned keyboardist. Yes, and as well as the celesta and the harpsichord. And the celesta, in case you haven't heard of it, it's a smaller keyboard instrument where the hammer strikes steel plates, so it creates this ethereal bell sound. It's the instrument that used for Hedwig's theme in the Harry Potter movies. <laughs> are you from Westworld? <laughs> like you're 100% a real human, right? Yes. Okay. I have I believe to believe so. you. <laughs> Ooh, that raises a good question, right? I mean, what if none of us are, but we don't know it? I was definitely like the early version that had a lot of bugs. <laughs> I feel like you're V7 or something. Raleigh, do you have a favorite bee of all the bees and the honeys that you collected? Is there a species or a subspecies of bee that really grills your cheese or that you think or that you think is the bee's knees I don't know I think all bees are really important because they're so important to the future of Earth's agricultural food supply and so any bee that I can help I'm glad to do anything to help save the bees um, obviously you're still you're still relatively young and you don't have to decide on anything too early but is there something uh, you know, post-college that it holds interest for you right now? Like, do you have any idea of the kind of thing you might want to do? 
I'm not exactly sure where I'm going to be in, in the next few years, but that's exciting because I guess I'll figure it out as I go along. God, that was a trick question and you nailed it. Raleigh Schweinfurth, everybody, our new fascinating friend. That was Raleigh Schweinfurth back in 2018. I mean, Elena, mm. like, I think this happens on a fairly regular basis. I can't speak for you, but for me, we often interview people who are just accomplished and so bright, and I, I wonder, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> Never more so than when we're talking to a high schooler yeah. who is as accomplished as Raleigh is. And, and check this out. Yeah. She's now a junior at Columbia University. <gasps> They grow up so fast. They do. Double majoring in environmental chemistry and music. (gasps) Look for big things from that young person. Uh, You're listening to the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank. That is Elena Passarello. Um, Since this is a house party, uh, let's get uh, some laughs going. Our next guest has performed on Conan, Comedy Central, and many other places, including right here on Livewire back in 2018. Uh, Take a listen to the very funny Ahmed Barucha. Good to be here. Good to be out of the house. I just had a baby. Just had a baby. Thank you. Thank you. So I probably shouldn't be here right now. Uh, gotta go soon. Uh, my wife doesn't know I left. I was excited to have a baby. I love babies. I like babies, because all you got to do is make a weird face at them, and then they're your friends. Like, I wish we could do that as adults, you know, just see, like, a cool guy at the gym working out, and you're just like, he's just like, who's this guy? I like your hair. Let me see your keys. Recently, outside of my house, I had a bunch of crows. 20, 30 crows all in one tree, cawing nonstop for about two days straight. Just like, all day long, nonstop, all 20, 30 crows at once, just shaking the tree. So finally, I called animal control and I was like, hey, what the hell is going on with these birds? They said it's baby crow season. They're calling it the baby crows and so they learn to fly and that can last up to five days. I said, what? That's the crow flight training program? <laughs> That's how you teach the gift of flight? Just fly, 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 Five days they were gone. Try it home on your kids. Just learned how to fly out of spite. All right, get off my back. All flying. We've taken it too far with cows. We kill them, we eat them, we wear them. That's on par with most animals. But with cows, we also eat veal, which are their children. Then we drink their milk, which doesn't sound as bad, but it's the milk intended for their children we ate. 
We eat their babies, and then we eat their babies' food with cookies. Just dunking cookies in there. Oh, just a midnight snack. But then, on top of all of that, we take pictures of our missing children. put it on their milk. <laughs> hey, sorry for killing your kid. Haven't seen my kid, though, have you? Really worried about my kid. Your kid's dead. Ate him. Washed him down with his own food. <laughs> Keep a lookout for my kid. My dad's Muslim. My mom's Catholic, so I'm neither. <laughs> I was mostly raised Catholic, but we didn't eat pork for my dad. It was confusing as a kid, you know, I was like, what's your mom's religion? Oh, there's a guy who's nailed to a cross, and here's a bunch of sins you can't do. Uh, what's dad's religion? Oh, just don't eat pork. <laughs> don't eat pork, it'll be fine. <laughs> I'm going to do that one. That one sounds easy. <laughs> I did it for most of my life. I didn't eat pork until college, you know, where most people are experimenting with drugs and their sexuality. I was like, what's this bacon all about? <laughs> Check this out. Uh, my dad's a good dad. He'll do anything for his kids. But it always ends up backfiring on him because we know he's there to save us. We act more irresponsibly. Then he gets mad at us for that. It's a vicious cycle. Especially my little sister. She's the baby. He'll do anything for her. Recently, she was driving her car in Massachusetts, a state over from where my parents live in Rhode Island, and her car starts breaking down. And her first instinct is just call my dad and go, Dad! My car's breaking down. It's in Massachusetts. I gotta go to work. Can you go get it? <laughs> and he just goes, okay. Just does it. Does anything for us. Goes all the way there. Takes a cab to a bus. Another bus. Another cab. He gets there. The door's locked. <laughs> she forgot to leave the door open. He has a temper. He calls her at work. just to get pinged at work. It's embarrassing. He's like, boom. Monica, your dad's on line one. He's like, what are you doing? You let the car. Can the car. Why let the car. He's like, I didn't let the car. He's like, you let the car. I can't get in. He hangs up the phone. Calls his tow truck buddy because just has weird friends everywhere. Because he's a dad. <laughs> Dads always have like a few weird friends. You know, like they knew him before they met mom. Then mom's like, uh, you got to get rid of that guy. <laughs> but he's cool about it. He's like, nah, I'm weird. You got kids. I'll be over here. <laughs> Call me if you need me. <laughs> so the guy comes, unlocks the door. When the door opens, poof, a waft of pot smoke billows out of the car. He's Muslim. He doesn't even drink. He looks down. There's a bong laying on the driver's seat. A bong? Like, what are you, a cartoon character? Like, who's smoking a bong and driving? Like, how high are you trying to get? <laughs> like, get a joint, be responsible, have a hand free. Grow up. <laughs> so my dad calls my mom, he's like, she's a pothead, I knew it, she's a pothead. My mom calls my sister, it's like, Monica, your mom's on line one. She's like, what are you doing? Dad's going crazy. I don't know what you're talking about. She hangs up the phone. My dad tows the car all the way back to Rhode Island. He looks at the car and he realizes that's not her car. <laughs> Just towed some stranger's car. Towed some pothead's car. And it wasn't even on the side of the road, it was in their driveway. 
just took a car out of a driveway. <laughs> yeah, I'm just leaving my car in a driveway in Massachusetts. This poor pothead just comes out of their house and is like, oh, crap. Where did I just go on an adventure looking for their car? Thought I had a car. Did I have a car? My mom starts freaking out. She's like, this is a federal offense. You took a car over state line, so she made my dad call the cops, and he's like, hello, I'd like to report a car theft. It was me, I stole the car. I'm sorry, I'm bringing it back. And then he just put it back in the driveway and left. It's like, this poor pothead just gets back from their adventure, and they're just like, the driveway. Should have checked the driveway. It's always the last place you look. Hey, you guys have been fantastic. Thank you very much. I'm Ed Barucha. That was Ahmed Barucha right here on Livewire. It's good to take a moment to try to re-engage with the topic of comedy and humor. <laughs> right. <laughs> even during these otherwise overwhelming times. Uh, we got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back with some music from Ron Artis II and The Truth. Hey, special thanks this episode to Karen Meeker of Everett, Washington, and Lori Jazuski of La Crosse, Wisconsin. Karen and Lori are part of the Livewire member community, and they have been generously supporting the show with a donation each month. We are very thankful for that because it is genuinely what allows us to keep doing the show. So Karen and Lori, thank you so much. A hearty <laughs> round of applause for Karen and Lori. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Um, okay, our musical guests this hour, they play something that I guess they call Hawaiian soul music, mm. which uh, I didn't, Elena, you know everything about music. Wrong. Did you know that was a genre before no. we had these guys on the show? No, I didn't. Um, but I believe that uh, I believe that it could be. Like I yeah. can imagine that being a very soulful place. They might have invented it, but I'm like very <laughs> glad now that I know this genre exists because they've been on the show a couple times, mm -hmm. I think. And both times, it's just been one of those moments where I'm sitting on the side of the stage, just agog. Yes. At the level of talent Explosive. and musicality. Yeah. And it's so, so soulful. Good. Super soulful. Yeah. I consider it to be Hawaiian soul music, Elena. I don't Ooh. know about you, but 
Take a listen to this. This is Ron Artiste II and The Truth performing their song, Searching for Answers. We recorded this at the Alberta Rose Theater back in 2018.
That was Ron Artis II and The Truth, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater back in 2018. Uh, their latest album is Soul Street. Uh, okay, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. Elena, I am like so excited to be talking to this guy. He is a comedian and a performer. His name is Demia Digi eBay. Uh-huh. Uh, he was a writer on that show, The Good Place, which I think is one of the best. Oh, yeah. Like, not just funny, but also just, like, intellectually fascinating, you know, TV shows and recent memory. Yeah, So good. He also does this thing around the 21st of September every year where he puts together a super elaborate production, like, at his house, (laughs) kind of revolving around the Earth, Wind, and Fire song, September. Oh, yeah. Do you remember the 21st night of September? Indeed. (laughs) So uh, that thing just came out. It's, as they say, breaking the internet. So we're going to talk to Demi. Uh, we're also going to talk to a writer named Drew McGarry who uh, writes about sports a lot, but also recently undertook the project of trying to improve his handwriting. Mm. And uh, Elena, you this might be news to you, but you and I are going to both <laughs> do some exercises to improve our handwriting. Oh, good. Thank goodness. And I think we're going to even see about having the Livewire audience vote on whose handwriting has improved the most by way of... <laughs> Social media evidence. And we have got music from The War and Treaty, like an incredible band with an incredible story. And last but not least, of course, we'd like to get your answers to our listener question, which is where our social media manager, Ariana Donneville, comes in. Hey, Ariana. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's good. How are you? Good. Okay, so we got through what do you still have faith in uh, successfully. (laughs) Uh, What's the question for next week's show? Yeah, this week we want to hear listeners tell us about a seemingly small skill they can never seem to master. Oh, man. I got a lot of of answers to that question. Yeah, like math, like all math. Yeah. No, it's me and cooking rice. So tiny. Such a tiny skill. (laughs) Cannot do it. (laughs) I thought you meant the rice was so tiny. No. Each individual kernel is so hard to cook because they are so tiny. Uh, What's the best way for people to answer that question uh, of a small skill they can't seem to master, Ariana? Yeah, people can submit their answers on our social channels. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Livewire Radio, as well as on Facebook. Um, Okay, before we let you go, uh, I hear that we're supposed to be looking out for some sort of package from you in the mail. Yes. Uh, What is this that you're (laughs) mailing us? I'm mailing you both fancy masks, so (gasps) get, get excited. Oh, this would have to be related to our big fancy masks event it is. that will be happening on October 8th. Every year we do a big get together. This year it's going to be virtual, of course, um, but it's usually called Fancy Pants. But this year, 
because we're living in a new reality. It's fancy masks that we get to wear during this event on October 8th. Yes, you will be receiving your fancy masks sometime in the next few days. I am so excited. Hey, if you're listening and you'd like to be a part of this uh, Fancy Masks event, I don't think uh, Ariana's going to mail you anything, but you can go to <laughs> livewireradio.org to find out more about what we're going to get up to. Thanks, Ariana. Appreciate you. Yeah, of course. That is going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to our guests, Chapman and McLean Way, Ahmed Barucha, Raleigh Schweinfurth, and of course, Ron Artiste II. And the truth. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. Amy McCormick is our development director. And Ariana Donneville is our marketing associate. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, Chris Doty, and A. Walker Spring, who also composed our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director, and she mixed this episode along with Jason Powers. Our house sound is by Kyle Woodrow. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we would like to thank member Laura Frizzell of Portland, Oregon. Thanks so much, Laura, for helping us out. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And If you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.